You're listening to Life Church Podcast with Pastor Bill Carpenter. Today's scripture reading is taken from John's Gospel, chapter 12, verses 9 through 19. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went out to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. God's Word. Well, hey, good morning, Life Church. It's uh, such an honor to be bringing to you the Word of God today, and happy Palm Sunday. I mean, I love this time of year. This is one of my favorite times of the whole year, Holy Week, and all the experiences that come with that, Uh, but I'm right now missing the fact that we always get to see our kids walk in here and and carry palm branches and wave them around as we worship, Um, so I'm a little bit bummed out about that. even asked Pastor Bill if he might be willing to wave some palm branches around, do a song or a liturgical dance, and... Of course, he refused, so that's on him, but uh, I've got a Palm Sunday message for you on Palm Sunday, and I'm hoping that maybe something a little bit normal um, will comfort you today, and certainly I think the themes from our text today uh, speak to us loudly during this significant time that we're in. And you know, Palm Sunday is a time when the church around the globe um, really stops to think about what does it mean that Jesus is our King? Um, And so we're going to be looking at that today as the crowd praise Jesus coming into Jerusalem. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. What does that mean, that Jesus is our King? And so we're going to look at that here in a few moments. But I want to talk first for a minute about the environment around Jesus. What's going on around him right now? And the environment in Jerusalem at this time is the celebration of the Passover, one of the greatest feasts in the Jewish life. And the time when they remembered how God rescued them out of Egypt and, and liberated them. The angel of death passed over them. And so it's this incredible feast. And the historian Josephus notes um, about 66 AD, so that would be about 30 years after this text or after this event happened, um, that there were 2.7 million Jews in Jerusalem. That doesn't count foreigners. So this is a big deal. There's crowds everywhere, no social distancing, just people everywhere. And Jesus is traveling up from Bethany, which is less than two miles away from Jerusalem. Uh, He he had just healed or raised Lazarus from the dead. 
Um, it was staying with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, and then he's coming to Jerusalem. And of course, so the, all these people who have pilgrimaged to Jerusalem are coming out to meet Jesus. There's this big buzz around. They've heard that he's raised this man from the dead who was dead for four days. And of course, they're bringing palm branches. And palm branches were plentiful in that area because um, there were many date palms around. And there's nothing in the Old Testament that would prescribe them for the Feast of the Passover, but they were used at the Feast of the Tabernacles, which isn't going on right now. So why bring palm branches to welcome Jesus? Well, um, palms had become kind of a nationalistic symbol of hope um, for the Jews. About 200 years earlier, Simon the Maccabee drove the Syrian forces out of the Jerusalem citadel, and then he was welcomed with music and palm branches. And then there were several other instances from that time forward where palms were really used to show kind of a messianic hope that this Messiah is coming to liberate the Jewish people. And so they're using palms again in this circumstances. They see Jesus very much as that, the, the promised Messiah. So there's this crazy buzz around Jesus. There's all this expectation swirling about him uh, that, hey, if this guy can raise somebody from the dead, think of what he could do to the Romans. Think of how he could liberate us. And Jesus has to answer this pressure and all this false expectation with something. And so he chooses a prophetic and simple act. He finds a donkey and sits on it. And in um, fulfillment of Zechariah 9.9, Jesus comes riding in on a donkey, actually a young donkey, a colt, um, and fulfills that prophecy that we read there in verse 15. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. You know, had he come in on a war horse, it would have been a whole different story, but he's telling us something very important, and we'll get to that in a moment. But suffice it to say, no generals, no war heroes rode in on a donkey. So that's the situation we find ourselves in in this text. And I want to point out four things as we go along that are important for us to realize about Jesus as king and our relationship to him. So first of all, number one, we all want a king. We always have and we always will. There's something in our DNA that wants a king. And I think this is fascinating because uh, given King's track record, you'd think that we'd want to get rid of kings once and for all. I mean, um, that's the American story, right? We, we dumped the tea in the harbor and we wanted to get rid of, of um, taxes and, and be liberated from all that stuff. But yet there's still some sort of longing in our heart for a king. Um, kings have a, a horrific track record, as I mentioned. And in 2012, my wife and I got to go and see what it's like to live in a kingdom with, uh, where there's an absolute monarchy. We went and visited the kingdom of Swaziland. Of course, our church was doing a water project there. And the king was everything that you'd expect. He lived in lavish luxury, um, huge, um, elaborate mansions. He had 13 wives. And yet his subjects lived in abject poverty, oftentimes struggling to even find clean drinking water. And so as Americans, we say, oh, you know, kings are terrible. Kings are bad. Kings, kings oppress people. But we also have to admit that democracy isn't always everything it's cracked up to be either. I mean, democracy is medicine, not food. It's, it's a temporary patch for our problem of evil. Um, we're, we're trying to mitigate how evil humans' hearts are by spreading out the power. And so um, democracy is often really inefficient. It's very expensive to keep having all these elections and all these different, um, different ways that we're trying to spread out the balance of power and put in checks and balances. And, and um, it's, it's not ideal, 
but it is the best thing that we have for now. But our hearts still ache for that time where we could say, hey, we've got a king and he's perfect and he's righteous. And we see this longing coming out in some of our favorite stories and our, and our best literature. I mean, think of um, some of the stories that we grew up with. Think of Robin Hood. You know, he's fighting until the good King Richard returns or King Arthur or Tolkien's Lord of the Rings. I mean, it ends with the return of the king. There's something deep in our hearts. There's something written in on our DNA that says we were built for a king and so we long for a king who's good, who has perfect, complete executive authority and he uses that authority for the flourishing of his citizens not to oppress them. We long for it. So that's the first thing. We all want a king. We always have and we always will. The second point is that Jesus is not the king we want. Jesus is not the king we want. And the Jews had something very different in mind for Jesus as king. And because Jesus knew that they had the wrong idea, he, gave, he gives them this powerful symbol. He comes riding in on a donkey as a man of peace. And you can imagine the disappointment uh, in the crowd, right? They're wanting to become riding in on a war horse with trumpets blowing. And, and um, they were just ready on the edge of their seats, ready to get into this stir of insurrection, ready to overthrow the Roman government. And in the way that only Jesus could do, he let them down. He said, I'm definitely the Messiah that was promised in the prophets, just like Zechariah, Zechariah said, but I'm not the Messiah that you've been looking for. I'm, not the, I'm, I'm the Messiah that you've been looking for, but I'm not the Messiah that you've been wanting. See, they wanted their idea of a king, not the actual king. And this actually wasn't a new thing for the Jews. It wasn't a new thing for God's people to get into this position of rejecting God as the king in their lives. Um, remember back to the story of King Saul in 1 Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7. We read perhaps one of the saddest verses in the whole Bible as the, the people come to Samuel and they're like, Samuel, get us, give us a king like all the other nations have. We want a king to rule over us. And so Samuel brings this idea to God, and God says to Samuel, it's not you they've rejected, Samuel, but they've rejected me from being king over them. God's people have always wanted their idea of a king, but not the true king. They haven't wanted God as king. And see, this is something that actually all of us struggle with. Every human being alive today, every human being that's ever lived, has struggled with this problem of accepting God as king. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, verse 10, that all human beings are naturally God's enemies. In Romans 3, verse 10 through 11, he writes, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands. There's no one who seeks after God. This doesn't seem true, though, does it? I mean, when we just think about it, does it seem true that, I mean, surely there's some of us that seek after God. Surely there's some of us that really want to submit to God as king in our lives. And maybe in part, yes, as the Holy Spirit renews our, our heart and as we live by the Spirit, but we also have to understand and admit that there's a part of us, our flesh, that is deeply in conflict with this idea, deeply resists the, His Lordship in our lives. When it comes to seeking God, we all tend to fall into one of two categories, and sometimes even both. The first category is there are people who seek God for the things that God can give them, but not for God himself. You know, they want his peace, his blessing, his comfort, his strength, his help, his happiness, but they don't really want him, and they certainly don't want him as the sovereign king in their lives. They don't want anyone telling them what to do. Many people appear to be seekers, but they're really just kind of like gold diggers. And if this is you, 
It's honestly pretty easy, easy to tell. All you have to do is look at what happens to your heart when you start losing things. You start losing finances. You start losing career opportunities. You lose uh, relationships, friendships, um, dating relationships, or you actually lose loved ones physically. What happens? Because in a lot of those circumstances, people lose their faith and they say, I, life has gone south. I, I've lost my faith in God. And what they're really saying was, I wanted God for the things that God could do for me. I wanted God for his stuff, but not for God himself, not for God as king in my life all by himself. That's the first category that we tend to fall in. The second category that we tend to fall into is that we seek God as we want him to be, but no one seeks God as the Bible reveals him to be. See, religious people can be just as hostile to God's kingship in their lives as pagans. We just find a religious way to mask it. We all want a king, but we're double-minded about it, see? We, we, we want one, but we really don't. Or we want one, but we want one as we have made him to be in our own minds, not as he actually is. And that's exactly what's going on here with the Jews. That's what they're doing here in this passage with Jesus, and we still do it all the time today. Uh, I love how Tim Keller puts it in his book, Hidden Christmas, as he compares us to King Herod, who you remember reacted so violently to the news that there was a new King Jesus and he's been born. And uh, of course, that was the first time that, king, that Jesus was lauded as the new king over Israel. Keller writes this, he says, this dark episode of King Herod's violent lust for power points to our natural resistance to even hatred of the claims of God on our lives. We create gods of our own liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. And just pause with that thought for a second. You know, that very pregnant phrase, we create gods of our own liking to mask our own hostility to the real God who reveals himself as our absolute king. And I wonder, have you done that? Have I done that? You know, I mean, I'm sure plenty of times I've, I've made up gods in my own mind, and maybe you're realizing that you've done that too, made up a God in your own mind that fits your idea of the way that, that he should be, and therefore you can justify that, yes, I'm seeking God, but really you're only seeking your idea of what God should be, not as he actually is. And like I said, everyone, if they're being honest, struggles with this, um, especially atheists struggle with this. Um, the atheist philosopher Thomas Nagel in his work, The Last Word, writes very candidly about it, appreciate how honest he is. He says, I'm talking about the fear of religion itself. I'm speaking from experience, being strongly subject to this fear myself. He says, I want atheism to be true, and I'm made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that my belief is right, and get this, he says, I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is this cosmic authority problem is not rare. And Nagel nails all of us. He's right. The cosmic authority problem that he has isn't rare at all. We all have it. And if you've not realized that you also have a cosmic authority problem, that you also have an internal resistance to God's kingship in your life, then you're just, not, you're just deceiving yourself. You're out of touch with reality. You need to look again. So you ask yourself, do I want God for the things that God can do for me or do I want him just for the king that he is? If so, 
if, if you find, I, I only want God for the things that he can do for me, you're certainly going to be, that's going to be tested over the next several months. I have no doubt about that. Or you can say, do I want, uh, have I made God to be a, a, a thing in my mind? And if I said, that's my God, that's my king, when, when in rea- reality, that has nothing to do with the true king, with God as he's revealed himself to be. Well, that's no king at all. Have you ever wondered why sometimes it's so hard for us to obey even some of God's simplest commands? Or why it's so hard for us to give ourselves to the disciplines that God's given us to draw us close to him? Why it's sometimes so hard to pray and even run to him in these desperate times? We would rather just escape or run to almost anything else. Well, it's because we have this part of us that's still deeply resistant to his kingship in our lives. Obviously, the Holy Spirit is working that out of us bit by bit as he sanctifies us, but it's critical that we understand that we have this peace of us going on, that by nature we're prone to resist his lordship in our lives, even hate him. It isn't too strong a word that Paul says we were enemies with God, and that makes God's saving of us even more stunning. That's what we're going to see as we look at how God deals with his enemies as king. That brings us to point number three. Jesus is the king we need. As the king, Jesus comes in peace. He doesn't come on a war horse, but on a baby donkey. He offers peace to his enemies. Rather than destroying his enemies, he lays down his life for them and converts them. He takes them from being enemies to being friends. As Jesus rode into town on this donkey, uh, the crowds cried out, Hosanna! They cried, Hosanna, which means save now. The Jews thought Jesus, as the promised Messiah, was coming to save them from their enemy, the Romans, but he's actually coming to save them from a much greater enemy. He was aiming at liberating them from their enemy of sin and death. He wasn't coming as the king they wanted, but as the king they needed. And I wonder how this can speak to us during this very challenging, difficult, and confusing time we're in right now. I'll confess right away, I haven't known exactly how to pray over the last couple of weeks because I look around our nation and our globe and I just see all the pain and the brokenness and the suffering and I just think, man, if I were making God up to be the way that I think he should be, I would just have him get us out of this jam. I would just have him end it all, right? Like he can do it. Why not just end it all? But I've wondered, I've wondered over these last several weeks, been thinking, if God is perhaps focused on a bigger enemy of ours, you know, just like with the Jews, if, if maybe he's focused on the enemy of our souls, and though I don't believe that God needs evil and suffering um, to accomplish his good purposes in our lives, he certainly doesn't waste any of these things. Maybe he isn't behaving as the king that we want. Maybe we feel like our cries, save now, aren't being heard. But is it possible that behind the scenes, God is orchestrating a good plan for his glory and our good. I believe it is. And I'd invite you and encourage you to pray into those things in the coming weeks. No doubt we still ask our great king to stop this virus, as we know he can. But to call him king is to declare that he knows what's best for us. He's not always the king we want, but he's always the king we need. And when we stop to think about it, the king we need is way better than the king we want every single time, right? I mean, If we're really honest, uh, the Jews were wanting 
something kind of simple. They were wanting to be liberated from the Romans, which would have been great, but it's only a matter of time before someone would come along and reconquer them, or they would still have to deal with sickness and death. There was a lot of things that they weren't seeing that they actually needed that Jesus could see. I, I'm going to address some of your bigger needs. So Jesus comes as the king we need and is better than any king that we ever dared hope for. See, because when he returns, Jesus is actually going to rule and reign perfectly. And just think about this with me for a minute. This is mind-blowing. When you just think about that Jesus will be our king and we'll have a perfect king. Like, he will be 100% trustworthy. He'll never lie to us. He'll never cut corners. He'll never use us for political gain. He will be, he'll have 100% approval rating. Can you imagine that? Any political leader in this time having 100% approval rate, there won't be different news stations saying, oh, Jesus isn't doing that great of a job, or Jesus is doing an awesome job. They're going to all say, yeah, Jesus is perfect. He's doing an amazing job. And we'll adore him. And as his subjects, as his people, we'll live together in perfect harmony. Most importantly, as king, Jesus plans to destroy all the things that would limit the flourishing of his people, that would prevent his people from flourishing. And at the top of that list, of course, are sickness and death. I've been thinking about this lately. Um, I don't know if it was a good decision, but I've been reading a book on death during this pandemic. It uh, might have been a bad decision, but it's put me in touch with my own mortality, and so I've kind of embraced it. And I can't get over this quote from Ernest Becker, who won a Pulitzer Prize for his work. And when speaking of the fear of death, Becker says, it is a terrifying dilemma to be in and to have to live with. The lower animals are, of course, spared this painful contradiction as they lack a symbolic identity and the self-consciousness that goes with it. The knowledge of death is reflective and conceptual, and animals are spared it. They experience death as a few minutes of fear, a few seconds of anguish, and it's over. But to live a whole lifetime with the fate of, death's haunting, of death haunting one's dreams and even the most sun-filled days, that's something else. And Becker certainly strikes a chord with us during this time, doesn't he? I mean, haven't you realized that you thought more about your mortality and the fear of losing loved ones around you in the last three weeks, more than probably the last three years combined or maybe the last 10 years combined? With Jesus as king, that dread will finally be gone. No more threat of death ripping us apart from our loved ones. You know, you'll, you'll finally be able to fully enjoy them and love them without that nagging sensation in the back of your mind that, hey, one of you is going to have to bury the other person. I mean, like Becker says, even on your most sun-filled days, haven't you experienced that nagging thought, that nagging sensation? I mean, whether it be with your kids or your spouse or a close friend or a close relative, you just, you have these beautiful times and yet there's this gray cloud hanging over that, that it can't last. See, because we want beautiful relationships, but we don't just want them for, for now. We want them to last forever. And only King Jesus can make that happen. Just think about what it'll be like to have him as king. He's going to eliminate all the injustice and evil and suffering and pain. And you'll be completely home, completely where you were meant to be with the person you were made for. There'll be no more temptation because he plans to destroy Satan, his servants, their works and effects. And finally, we'll be able to be his servants wholeheartedly, ready 100% to submit to his will all the time. We'll be free to be completely who he made us to be. Jesus is the king we need. And that brings me to point number four in verse 19. When people see Jesus for the king he is, the whole world will go after him. 
I love how John ends this passage with this fatalistic statement of frustration from the Pharisees. I mean, just look at that. They say, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. And there's just loads of irony that John has worked into this particular phrase. I love how he's doing that. But the deal is this, that Jesus isn't just attracting Jews to himself, even as he's being hailed the king of Israel. People of all nations are running to Jesus. It isn't by accident that John records right after this passage that there's a group of Greeks that come to seek out Jesus. And this has been John's message all along, hasn't it been? That Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah, the one who's come, that the world, the whole world, all who believe in him wouldn't perish, but would have life, everlasting life in him. And I just wondered this past week, could there be a more pointed time in our lives to be sharing this good news with the entire world? See, friends, we didn't just become mortal beings in the past three weeks. Uh, as a globe, we just realized it again. We just realized that we're, hey, we're fragile. We're broken. Um, we're dying. And even if it's not from coronavirus, we're all still dying. I mean, I, just a couple weeks ago, I was looking at one of uh, Jenny and I's wedding photos. And, and then I looked at myself in the mirror and I thought, my word, I'm dying. I'm dying. I'm getting older. I'm falling apart. And we all need saving. And if you listen carefully, you can almost hear the whole world crying out at this time, Hosanna, save us now, save us now. And thankfully, we have something to offer them. We have a king who's taken us from enemies to friends. We have a king who has, is very familiar with death. He's taken the full force of death. He's, he's passed through it and has defeated it that his subjects might live. And this king, who 2,000 years ago rode into Jerusalem on a donkey, he plans to come again in a very different fashion. One, on the one hand, he came in, the first time he came into Jerusalem, he came in peace. The second time, it'll be very different. And we see this in Revelation 19. We see him not as the gentle, peaceful king, but as our cosmic king, the war king, highly exalted, riding on a white horse and trampling down his enemies once and for all. Because he will put an end to sin, sickness, Satan and death, and he will reign forever and ever. And around his throne will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. You see, the stories are all true. The Lord of the Rings, the return of the king. Our, our king is coming back, and he's going to put everything right. Dear friends, I don't know where this message finds you today. My guess is that we're kind of all over the spectrum in how we are dealing with this season. But I'm wondering, could we together move towards this good king? this true king, and move away from our false kings and, and our false reasons for seeking him. You say, Pastor Dave, how do I do that practically? Well, I got a couple of ideas here. Obviously, this is something that the Holy Spirit has to work in our hearts. So we're very dependent upon the Holy Spirit doing this. But first of all, <clears throat> I got four things as we close here. To treat Jesus as king, it means, number one, we ask the Holy Spirit to help us to submit to his lordship in our lives. We know that our flesh resists this, so we pray for grace to do it. You know, oftentimes I think Americans treat Jesus as just another wise, sagely person in their lives. And they consider what he says, and, and they kind of weigh that with all the other options. But in the end, they make the call. Jesus is nothing more than a consultant in that regard. And, and that's just not how we can treat him. He won't take that. He's a king, and we mustn't approach him in any other way. Second thing it means to treat Jesus as king is we make big, bold requests. John Newton, the famous pastor and hymn writer, said, Thou art coming to a king 
large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. You know, kings love to do big things, lavish things. Um, they like big requests. Even if, they, even if God doesn't answer your prayer request every single time, um, he loves when you ask him. So keep coming to him. Keep asking. Maybe there's something big you haven't asked him to do. We're certainly going to keep asking him to end this pandemic. That's something that we should do. He's our king and he can do it. But maybe there's something that you've said, ah, I'm not going to ask him that. Large petitions with thee bring. Remember, he's a king. None can ever ask too much. Thirdly, to treat Jesus as king means we continue to declare his lordship to others. You know, part of having a king and part of being in his kingdom means we're his ambassadors. We represent him wherever we go. And though we can't be in person with many people right now, there's still ways to declare that he is the risen Lord to declare what he's done in your life. I'd encourage you these next couple of weeks, check in with your non-Christian friends. Ask them how they're doing. Really care about them. See if their mortality is bothering them. See if the Holy Spirit will open a door where you can speak the life of Jesus. You have the answer that they're looking for. And then finally, fourthly, to treat Jesus as king means we trust him for our security. That he's working in ways that we cannot see and that our lives are in his good and wise and sovereign hands. Don't miss this comfort. Don't miss this discipline of really just throwing yourself into the arms of King Jesus and trusting him no matter what. And I want to close with this story that I think illustrates this well. It's a story I read this past week about Addison Litch, who was a theology professor, and he was talking to the parents of two of his female students. And in hearing him preach, they both had decided to become missionaries, and their parents were upset that he'd led them to sort of kind of a religious fanaticism. They said to Dr. Litch, you know that there's no security in being a missionary. The pay is low. The living situation may be dangerous. We've tried talking to our daughters. They need to just get a job and a career, maybe get a master's degree or something like that so that they have some security before they go off and do this missionary thing. And this is what Dr. Litch told them. He asked them this question. You want them to have some security, huh? We're on a little ball of rock called Earth, and we're spinning through space at millions of miles an hour. Someday a trapdoor is going to open under every single one of us, and we will fall through it. And either there will be millions and millions of miles of nothing, or else there will be the everlasting arms of God. And you want them to get a master's degree to give them a little security? Dear friends, our only security in these challenging times is in our true King, Jesus. Let's run to him today. Amen.